Well, we have been in this series on Acts. Acts. Our goal in the series of Acts is to study the church in the first century in order to better understand who we should be as the church today. Uh, We've gone through the first 11 chapters of Acts already so far, and if you've missed that, here's the primer. The church is advancing by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the way the people of the church live out the teachings of Jesus, loving one another, caring for one another, serving anybody that they can, and fearlessly preaching the gospel at every opportunity. Saul, the Pharisee who hunted Christians in the first part of Acts, encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus and is converted to Christianity, and now he is advancing the gospel all around the world. He goes by Paul at this point. Peter, one of the original 12 disciples, was given a vision by God clarifying that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial Jewish laws around cleanliness And now it was okay for Jewish people to eat with and enter the home of Gentiles. We'll talk more about that as we get into our passage for today. With barriers removed, now the gospel is advancing beyond the Jewish people to the Romans, to the Greeks, to Asia, to places all over the world. And it's about to spread even farther than that. Acts chapter 12 tells another story of a miraculous prison escape. There's quite a few of them in the book of Acts. Peter's let out of jail by an angel, and then he just keeps on preaching the gospel. At the end of Acts chapter 12, we learn that Paul and Barnabas, the encourager, the very person who vouched for Paul to the disciples when nobody wanted anything to do with him, Barnabas, uh, Paul and Barnabas have set out together on a missionary journey to bring the gospel to new places. Acts chapter 13 shows them doing just that. They go to Cyprus, to Antioch, uh, all in what's modern-day Turkey, but at the time it was territory occupied by the Romans and by the Greeks. They preached the gospel there, and people responded to it. In chapter 13, we see again some tension between Jewish converts and Gentile converts. This is a recurring theme all throughout the early days of the church. And in the book of Acts, we see that those who were raised to know God through Judaism, who then converted to Christianity, are at a tension point between those who were raised Greek to worship Greek gods or Roman to worship Roman gods or in any other kind of religious way and then convert to Christianity. Those are called Gentiles. And there is this tension that exists between the Jewish Christian and the Gentile tension. We see that in chapter 13. Chapter 14 is more of the preaching and teaching and sharing of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas go to another area of modern day Turkey, uh, Iconium and Lystra, which were at that time part of a nation called Galatia. The very place the book of Galatians is written to. And they meet some real resistance in Galatia. Acts chapter 14 verse 19 says, Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now, this is not the first time, or the, this is the first time, it is not the last time that we would see Paul stoned in the Bible. And I do mean he had rocks thrown at him, not the other kind. And so one of the ways that people were commonly executed in those days is to be 
stoned to death, meaning they had rocks starting with small ones, going up to bigger ones, thrown at them until they were dead. Paul had so many rocks thrown at him that everybody thought he was dead and they drug his body outside the city to the place where they discarded the bodies of convicts. And then he just got up and he went back to work. That's kind of Paul, who he is. This brings us to chapter 15, and that's our text for today. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, we're going to pause for a second because we're going to talk a lot about circumcision today. So in case you don't know what that is, we have some images on the screen here. If we could, or we take those down? Okay. And we don't really have images, just kidding. But circumcision is what we're talking about at church today. So try not to make eye contact with the person next to you. Uh, or if, if you don't know what circumcision is, just turn to your neighbor and say, can you explain to me? What is circumcision? Now, why is circumcision such a big deal in the book of Acts? As a matter of fact, circumcision is a big deal throughout the whole of the Bible. The word circumcision appears way too many times in the scriptures, okay? I didn't bother counting because truly I don't want to know. It's in here a lot, and that is for a good reason. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant given by God to Abraham, and it's been a sign of the Hebraic covenant with God ever since. If we take a step back in time, we did Binge the Bible series this spring where we broke down the story of Scripture, especially the first five books of the Bible in season one, and we talked about Genesis, how in the beginning, God and man had this intimate relationship. They were together. They were unified, walking alongside one another, but then sin entered the story, and the relationship began between God and man was separated. It was distanced. And there's a long period of time where there is distance and separation between God and man because of the sin that lived in man's hearts. We see God starting over again with Noah and in Noah starting a, a new line of people. But then as time goes on, distance grew between those people and God as well. So finally, we see that God decides that the moment has come for him to get more involved. And he enters into uh, the story of a man named Abram. And Abram and God make a covenant. God says, Abraham, I'm going to, he changes his name to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to reveal myself to the whole world. I'm going to make you into a great nation. From you are going to be, is going to be a blessing to all the nations. Out of you, I am going to build relationship with humanity that will never be broken again. And he makes a covenant bond with Abraham. And the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Now why circumcision specifically? I don't really know. I do know this, that in that covenant, God made it clear that Abraham and the people he would produce were to be set apart and made holy for God. That in order to have a relationship with God, they had to separate themselves from the world around them. And there was going to be a lot of ways they were going to do that. The very first way, the symbol of this promise and this covenant with God was to do something called circumcision. And so it is the sign of this covenant 
with God. But things change. Our sin and our brokenness had made it impossible for us to approach God. So starting really with the sons of Adam, carried into Abraham, and then written down under a leader called Moses, God gave a system of laws and sacrifices that made it possible for humanity to approach him and have a relationship with him. But the system was flawed from the beginning. It was written flawed. It was all meant to prepare the way for Jesus. As God makes a covenant with Abraham, he knows that his covenant with Abraham is to lead the way for Jesus. He tells Abraham, I am going to make you a blessing to all the nations. That is a promise about the coming of Jesus. It was always meant in this way, this Abrahamic covenant, to be temporary. A big part of the laws that were put into place in Leviticus through Moses, these ceremonial laws, were there to simply set the people of God apart from the rest of the world. When Jesus came, he would bring the world into what we call a new covenant. So now we speak in terms of the old covenant and the new covenant. Abraham made a covenant with God, which became the old covenant. Jesus made a covenant with humanity, which we call the New Testament. Jesus would teach us to set ourselves apart from the rest of the world by following him and doing what he did, by practicing his ways, by loving people, serving people, and sharing the message of Jesus. The sign of the covenant with Jesus is threefold. It is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is water baptism, and it is communion. And it is a life lived practicing the way of Jesus. This new covenant changed everything because Jesus changed everything. But change can be very, very difficult, especially for religious people. Church is a community, and that's beautiful. But communities have the tendency to forget to face outward. To forget to open our arms to new members. And instead, we, we turn ourselves inward and make it about maintaining a status quo. We make it about keeping ourselves comfortable. We make it about the way that it's always been done and therefore the way it always should be done. We make it about the things that I like and how it best serves me rather than about those who are coming into it. That's what we see happening right here at this point, And it's been happening consistently since the start of the church. Acts chapter 15, verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. I just said it like that because here's the image I want you to have. 
This is a praise report, okay? It's a praise report meeting. Paul's standing up on the stage. Barnabas is there. Everybody's sitting down and saying amen. They're talking about the way God is saving the Gentiles, that they're bringing the gospel into places they never imagined it would go. And they're seeing people receive it and respond to it, get baptized in the Holy Spirit, get baptized in water, and all these amazing things are happening. And then there's this one guy. They call him Church Sam, you know? And Church Sam's been a member uh, in good standing at that church for 42 years, okay? And Church Sam used to be a Pharisee, and he became a Christian, and he's applied some of his old life to his new one. And in the middle of this praise report, he's sitting in the back left side of the auditorium, and he stands up, and he says, the Gentiles should be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were startled at this. No, it says they met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed them that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. This is really important. What does Peter mean by this? You're trying to put a yoke on them that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. He's not talking about circumstance, circumcision specifically. He's talking about the laws of Moses. He's talking about the old covenant. He's talking about the way that they approached the throne of God before Jesus in those days, circumcision, ceremonial law, was the only way to approach the presence of God. Peter's very aware that that system was never complete. Nobody could keep all the laws. Nobody could get it right all the time. But in that system, the presence of God was in one place, in the temple. And in the temple where the holy presence of God was, his literal presence, only one person was allowed to enter it once a year. The rest of the time, depending on your station or who you were, you would just get as close as you could get. Some of people that would be a dozen feet, some people it would be dozens of feet from the presence of God. But you had to do everything just right. Follow all the rules, keep your life in order, do everything exactly the way the laws of Moses taught you to do it so that you could get kind of close to the presence of God, feel his presence at a distance and worship and go home filled with that so that you could carry on with your life. Every single person you've ever met, including yourself, is designed to experience the presence of God. You have a need for it. You have, a, you have a inside of you a hole that is only filled by encountering the presence of God. And these people knew that. And so that's why they would do their best to keep all the laws, to be able to approach the presence of God. Nobody in the history of humanity ever did it only Jesus. And so, in order to close the gap between my sin and the presence of God, the system of sacrifices is introduced in the book of Leviticus. 
because there has to be a blood penalty for my sins. That's what the sacrifices are all about. Jesus becomes the blood sacrifice that satisfies every sin for the rest of time. We get to enter into the presence of God. Not only that, but you and I get to have the presence of God enter into us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything changed. And so you've got to understand that to just get within a few dozen feet of the presence of God is very different than for me to now have the presence of God living inside of me. And so everything is different. And Peter is saying, these people have the presence of God living inside of them, but you are still treating them like they've got to do whatever they can just to get close enough to the presence of God to feel filled up for the next several months. That's not the way that it works anymore. And on top of that, none of us were ever able to keep all the laws of Moses. It is a yoke even we could not bear. That's what he means by that. You're holding them to a standard that you couldn't meet. How dare you? That's what Peter says. Uh, so, He's saying the old covenant's gone, a new one has come. There's no need to make these people undergo the sign of the old covenant when it didn't work in the first place. Let's just have them do what Jesus said they should do. Verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should just write to them and tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from the meat of animals that are strangled, and from blood. Uh, here, that, that, those rules are just affirming, just as Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That means that those ceremonial laws that allowed us to come near to the presence of God, those were completed and fulfilled in Jesus. But there are a lot of laws in the Old Testament and beyond uh, that are there so that we can remain holy before God. That that rule about strangling animals and drinking blood and all that crazy stuff is because the Greek religions and the Roman religions and the pagan religions of the world did these things as an act of worship to pagan gods. He is telling them essentially to obey the first commandment, keep no gods before me. And so these rules that he affirms are really just about entering into Christianity out of a different religion. Other than that, he wants them to just do what Jesus asked them to do. The letter is written to the Gentiles uh, that says this exactly, sent to all the different churches. And chapter 15 ends by telling us that Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement that resulted in them going their separate ways over a young man named John Mark. And uh, we'll come back to that, but that is where our passage will end for today. And so... Uh, listen, if you're in here and you're new to church, you're new to this church, and we're talking about covenants and, and a lot of stuff about circumcisions and people's private parts, I understand that's a lot to receive. And uh, if, it, if it was hard to follow, don't worry. I got some room. I just want to show you this passage, and now let me make it practical, and we can see exactly what we can learn as we go forward from this today. And the very first thing is this. Don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. There's this lesson in the early formation of the church that we're still struggling to learn as Christians today. We get used to things being the way that they are. And when we push against, we, we really push against it when those things begin to change. 
Maybe it's a system or the way we've always done things as a church that changes. Uh, maybe an event that's a tradition becomes something else or it finds a different season and we resist that change. Maybe it's new leadership. Maybe it's the layout of the church changing. We're portable, so you, you never know where the entrance might be on a given day. Maybe it's new people in our small group or in our friend group that we have to adjust to. Have you, have you ever been? I, I've been a gatekeeper before. I'm like, I've got enough friends. I don't need any more. I don't know. Maybe we need to adjust to new people coming in. Maybe it's a change on the rhythms and the ways that we serve in the dream team. There's a hundred different ways this pops up. And odds are you've thought of a few as I've lifted them up. I, I remember growing up in the church. I grew up in a, in a church in Somerville, South Carolina. And we got a new choir director one time. And this choir director, man, this guy, you wouldn't believe this. I'm telling you. Every Christmas Eve service, every Christmas Eve service, for as far as I know, for a hundred years, we, at the end of the Christmas Eve service, did the Hallelujah Chorus, and everybody would come up on stage, and the whole church would be the choir. We'd just sing to the empty pews. Hallelujah. It was great. And um, we all loved it, and we hired this new worship uh, minister, music minister, I think we called it back then, and the choir director canceled that and decided to just do a whole different program for Christmas Eve, and my goodness gracious. You would think that the man came up and said, we no longer follow Jesus. We're pursuing Joseph Smith. But the way that people treated the guy, man, they carried him out of there on spits. Homeboys in Kentucky now. He had to move to, to a different state in order to continue in ministry after taking away the hallelujah chorus from this church. You know, we, we've experienced this kind of pushing against, maybe it's not church related. Maybe you do this in life, you get stuck. I love grocery shopping, okay? I love grocery shopping. There's something about having a list that you could just accomplish in a few minutes and being done with it. It's so sad. It's such a dopamine rush for me. I'm like, woo, yeah. Oh man, look at this produce today. Well, what I did when I moved into the house I live in now, and you're going to think I'm crazy, and that's because I am. I spent two hours each at the two Ingalls stores that I decided I would most be shopping at, memorizing the layout of the entire store, getting to know the meat department, learning their names. I'm telling you right now, this is, but the reason I did that is because now I have it memorized. I walk into those Ingalls in Fletcher and in Mills River, and I can be in and out of there with like a 50 item list in 10 minutes or less, or your money back. The fastest grocery shopper, it's about efficiency. You know, I never wonder about where, I memorized where things are that I know I will never buy. But if Raelle says to me, John Mark, can you pick up X? I'm like, I know exactly where that is. I've committed it to memory. Well, I'm in the Fletcher Ingalls a few weeks ago, and they have an entire aisle torn apart, you guys. The Latin American and Asian food aisle, of which I enjoy, is just in shambles. It's all over the floor. And I, and I see it and I start, my heart beat raises, you know, I start sweating and I, I walk up to the guy that's doing things. And I say, excuse me, sir, what is going on right now? What are you doing? To which he says, we're rearranging this aisle to make it more uh, efficient. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you've done nothing of the sort. I am not kidding. I left and went and got in my car and sat there for 10 minutes, just fuming. 
about this change. I cannot believe that they have done this at my sacred place of peace. They've taken this. Look, the, the reality is that we do things like this in the church context and in a relational context and in every context of our lives because when we get used to something and we get comfortable with things the way that they are, we get very stuck and we start to resist change. But the church is constantly changing. People are constantly changing. Relationships are constantly changing. The only thing that never ever changes is Jesus Himself. It says in Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He won't change, but the way we bring Him to the world and the way we interact with the people that He desires relationship with will always change. we got to remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, but we have to embrace also the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Be flexible. Be the kind of person who is fixated on mission, but not on the way that we get there. Don't get stuck. Second thing is this. Fight for unity. Since day one of the church, the devil has been trying to divide it. It's, it's unbelievable to me. You know, we look at the splintered condition of the church today, and it begins in Acts, all the way back at the very beginning. Together and unified as a community of people following Christ, the church is an unbelievable force for change. Acts chapter 2 paints that picture. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But within a short time of that, there were already these seeds of bitterness and division working their way into the followers of the way. And it served as a distraction and as an obstacle of the gospel. Church, we cannot be divided. We must be unified. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. 1 Peter 3.8, finally, all of you have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In order to have, have unity in the church, we have to fight for that unity. One of our core values at this church is that humility is our posture. Because in order for us to remain unified, we have to remain humble. Almost every division begins from a posture of pride. I'm right, you're wrong. You'll never understand, you'll never see it clearly. Here comes the seeds of division. But humility says, I don't know, let me listen. Let me seek to understand. Let's find a way to move forward together. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas and this council all met together, not because they were coming to have a fight, not because somebody wanted to show somebody else how much smarter they were, how much better they were at doing church or all these things. They needed to be unified, and so they met together in order to fight for that unity to resolve it and find a way to move forward together. 
When you find yourself involved in division, in the church, in relationships, wherever it might be, be a uniter. Be someone who drives people together, not further apart. And in order to do that as a church and as followers of Jesus in general, we have to resolve conflict. Number three is resolve conflict. Resolve conflict. Acts 15 is about the church as a whole, resolving this conflict between two large groups within the church, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And then there's this disagreement between Jewish Christians about what the Gentiles should do. And this all comes together in Acts chapter 15 to a point of resolution. It ends uh, with them deciding together to send a letter out that would change the way things are being done in the church. But I think it's interesting that this chapter ends with a conflict. Verse 36, Acts 15. Some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, to be with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So this is an interesting way to end a chapter about church conflict finding resolution. There is no resolution listed here. We don't even really know the extent of the conflict. We know that in Acts chapter 13, it says that Mark left them, John Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. There's, oh, tons of Christian fan fiction about why. There's uh, many who believe that John Mark went back to Jerusalem to care for his mother, to be with his family, that he, he was solely going for that purpose and that Paul was so sore about it because the call of Jesus is to abandon everything, to burn the plows and pursue him and follow him, something that Paul himself would die for. And he thought John Mark's commitment just wasn't high enough. But there's a lot of people that think maybe John Mark went for that reason, but also to go back and tell the people in Jerusalem that Paul wasn't asking anyone to get circumcised. In Galatians chapter 2, we know that this is already a point of tension uh, that is happening between Paul and Barnabas. This is just before the council of Jerusalem. Galatians 2, 12 and 13 says, Until certain people came from James, he had been eating with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he stopped doing this and separated himself because he was afraid of those who were pro-circumcision. The rest of the Jews also joined with him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray with them by their hypocrisy. That's where it says that Paul and Barnabas had come to a disagreement about this before. And that was kind of the constant tension until they had this council in Jerusalem. And it was still kind of a tension after that. The point is this. Paul and Barnabas had disagreed previously. They disagreed over where this guy should go and whether or not he should be a part of the ministry. And it says that they disagree so sharply that they parted ways. The resolution doesn't come in the book of Acts. We see later in Colossians and in Timothy that Paul now speaks of John Mark as a trusted ministry friend. Acts is written, uh, this council takes place around 48 AD. And the next time we see John Mark mentioned, it's around 60 AD. 
And so we know that some point in the future, they reconciled that John Mark's a part of Paul's ministry. We never see Paul speak ill of Barnabas. We never see him talking down on him. We don't see this bitter, mean conflict taking place, but we see that they break and separate ways. Here's the point. Here's why I think this exists in Acts 15, because Luke, the writer who wrote the gospel of Luke and who wrote Acts, shows us multiple times throughout his writings, the shortfalls and the shortcomings of the leaders of the church. There's this common thread where he's trying to help us understand that even when God is moving, even when things are going right, even as the gospel advances, that all of this, it can get pretty messy. The church is led by people and people can be messy. The church is built on relationships and relationships can be messy. That the only thing that is consistently good is Jesus. And that occasionally we lose our way along the way. And yet the gospel continues to move forward. And yet the mission of the church advances. And yet unity and resolution are worth fighting for. We have to resolve our conflicts with one another because the work that we've been called to do is far too important to get distracted in all these things. When you have a conflict with someone, Jesus said that when you have a conflict with somebody and you bring a sacrifice to worship, to leave it where it is, to go and find that person and make it right and then come back and give your sacrifice. Relationships matter to him and they matter to us. We resolve conflicts because the mission is too big to let it fall to the side due to the messiness of people. And so if you're in this space today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, well, I think that this, this story in Acts 15 can just kind of serve as my way of telling you that when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, it's not just gonna be uh, all cakes and oranges for the rest of time. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to make sense that it's not, we're not all just going to hold hands and sing kumbaya into eternity, that it doesn't go that way, that there'll be conflicts and there'll be arguments and there'll be moments where the messiness of people are just obvious, that nobody's going to get it right all of the time, not even you. But what I can tell you is this, that when you enter into this family, when you enter into the life of the church, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus first, that pursuing Jesus is worth it. It's worth every difficult moment along the way, that he is worth it because you need him and we're designed to know him and to live alongside of him. And I can tell you that as the church, we will fight for unity and we will resolve our conflicts because we care about you and about the life of the church and what it looks like as we move forward. So if you're ready to enter into that relationship today and begin it, to, to, to join in on what God is doing, it begins with a simple conversation. Every head bowed and every eye closed, just say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. I believe in you and I know that I need you. I want to be near to you. So all that I am, from this day forward, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.